Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that you help us to understand this passage, that your Holy Spirit will fill us with an understanding of your person, your character, and your power. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, how did you feel when you came to church today? How did you feel when you sang the songs a moment ago? Uh, how did you feel when you heard God's word read to us? When is the last time that you really felt feeling in your heart in relation to God deep inside of us? Now, for some of us, this might be an uncomfortable question because we might ask ourselves the question, what have feelings, our feelings, our attitudes got to do with God? What, what do our feelings have to do with our relationship with God? Should we feel anything? Should we expect to feel anything when we come before God? Because after all, you know, this is a Presbyterian church, right? We're not some sort of charismatic church. We don't like, you know, raise up our hands and start crying, things like that. So, should feelings play a part in our relationship with God? So, uh, if you put up here the question, line up, yep. So, what should I feel in my relationship with God? Should I be feeling anything? Now, today's passage begins in chapter 6, verse 1. And it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to, to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. They set the ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abimadab, who was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abimadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Now, it begins today's passage by saying David again. David again brought all the young, able young men of Israel together. Now, this word again shows that he brought together all of Israel, just like in chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, all Israel came together for the coronation of King David as king. So here, as we look at chapter 6, again, all Israel came together with David. And it was a huge number of people, 30,000 young men. Now what this tells us is that David was embarking on something which was a very big deal. It was a very big deal, as big a deal as his coronation as the king. And in fact, as we discover what he brought Israel together for, we saw that it was a bigger deal than even his coronation because he was bringing the ark, the very ark of God, from a small town to the capital, Jerusalem. Now, the ark of God is something that looks like this, okay? So it was, it was probably about uh, three feet plus long, so it was, you know, would have filled up the size of where I'm standing. And... You can see that was a very unique piece of furniture. Oh, uh, next slide. Because it was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place of the temple. So if you look at the tabernacle before the, the temple was built, if you look at the tabernacle, the, the tent meeting place of God, all the other furniture was all outside in the not holy place. But in, within the most holy place, which only the priest could go into, there was the Ark of God. Now, we have many passages. Actually, I, I, I was tempted to show you all the passages in the Bible regarding the Ark of God, but then I realized that we'll be here all day looking at all the passages. So, I just took this summary. Next slide. 
from the ESV Study Bible, which I would recommend very highly to all of you if you can get it, if you want. The ESV Study Bible is very good. And here's a summary of the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of God. The first thing we notice about the Ark of God is that it was the place which contained the two stone tablets which were given to Moses containing the Ten Commandments. The Ark of God was not meant to be touched by human hands, but actually designed to have these two golden poles in it, which you were meant to carry so that you wouldn't touch the Ark. But more importantly, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it was between the cherubim. So if you go back one picture, Leonard, next one. Between the cherubim or these angelic beings at the top, where God's presence was meant to be, and that was where God literally, in a sense, representatively met with his people, the Israelites. So this ark was a very, very important piece of furniture. Because not only did it contain the Ten Commandments, but it was literally where God met his people and where God spoke to his people and where God was supposed to be with his people. So now we understand why David again got the whole of Israel together with him because to move this piece of furniture to his capital was a great endeavor, a great project. But the sad thing is, when we read in verse 2, it says, He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, if we've been reading through the whole book of Samuel, we, we would recognize that the last place that the ark of God was actually mentioned was in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Right? We're now up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if we remember 1 Samuel chapter 7, okay, better move forward again, Leonard, sorry. Oh, no, got to go back. Ah, It was actually in this place called Kiriath Jarim. Now, Kiriath Jarim, if you click the, you got to click it, uh, was actually this place called Bala of Judah. It's the same, same name, same place, right? But when we hear of this place, it should fill us with sadness, right? Because that means that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, had been sitting in this small town for generations, for a long, long time. Because when we had read 1 Samuel chapter 5 to 7, we would have heard about how the Philistines... Next slide. Uh, okay, we got this already. Yeah, next one. How the Philistines had actually captured the, the Ark of God and they brought it into their cities. And the Philistines actually suffered because of it. Because with the Ark of God came skin diseases, the falling statues, the rats, the tumors. And the Ark of God made its way back to Israel. But even when it made its way back to Israel, as we did on our responsive reading, we saw that people still died because they disrespected the Ark. And therefore they abandoned the Ark in this small town in this guy's house, Abimedeb. Okay, so on the next slide. All right, so in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we saw how the Ark was captured in Shiloh and brought all around Philistine till eventually it ended up in Kiriath Jerim. So as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's actually been abandoned for a long time. For 36 chapters, we haven't heard of the Ark of the Covenant. We know that the last we read of the Ark of the Covenant, Samuel was a judge. 
And after Samuel died, King Saul came onto the throne. And after King Saul died, King David came onto the throne. And it's only now that we read of the Ark of the Covenant again. It had been in Abimelech's house. Abimelech died. His son, Elysia, was supposed to look after He died. And now his grandchildren are left, Uzzah and Ahio. So something must have been really messed up because here, the very presence of God, the Ten Commandments, the place where God's voice was heard, was actually put away in the background in the basement of someone's house and never heard of again. So what David is trying to do is really a wonderful thing. He is re-establishing God's voice again, His presence into His kingdom. And as we read here in verse 5, rightly so, there's celebration, right? Because in verse 5 we read, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sustrums, sistrums, and cymbals. And all Israel, the 30,000 young men, were there. Now, this is not some sort of fake celebration. This is a real celebration from the heart. Because David and Israel now recognize what they were missing. They were missing out on God. They were missing out on their relationship with God. And now that the object of their relationship, God, was in their presence, they could celebrate with joy and happiness. Now, I think this is so important for us because I remember a story which was told by a pastor uh, many years ago. I heard in a sermon on the internet. I don't even remember where he came from. But he was telling us how his football team won the state championship. And I presume this was a really big deal because the whole school celebrated that they won the state championship. So he was recalling how there was a party and how everybody was having a good time until about midnight when all the beer ran out. Now when the beer ran out, apparently people became very unhappy and they became very grumpy and then, you know, they all left. And this pastor was saying that he didn't understand why they became unhappy because the object of their joy should have been winning the state championship, not the beer. And he said that he was happy even without the beer. And I think that that's what we're meant to see here, isn't it? Because for David and Israel, the object of their joy was God himself. That was why they were so happy. And I think that as we begin this section, the question that we really have to ask ourselves is, as we reflect on David and Israel at this point in time, what are the things that bring us joy? Do we celebrate God the same way David and Israel did? Is the object of our joy God himself? So think about this question that I have up here. Okay, I have lots of diagrams today, so it's good. Think of the top five things in your life that give you joy. Or the top five things that you celebrate and that makes you happy. Now, if God is not in one of those top five, then are you more like the house of Saul, which neglected God for all those years and had no place for God? Or are you more like David, right, which finds joy in God, who seeks to make God a priority in his life? Because in some way, that lack of joy and celebration 
and the seeking of God is actually a sign of the spiritual barrenness of the 36 chapters that came about before David. Now, the passage then goes on in verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Dachon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the, stumb- the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And today, till this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Ebed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, when we read the first five verses, even though it's filled with such joy and celebration and great things, there should have been some small alarm bell ringing in our head. Because in verse 3, look at what it said. It said, They, Israel, set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abimadab, which was on the hill. Now, immediately, we would feel there's something strange here because we know that the design of the ark was with poles. Okay, and these poles there are not for ornamental or aesthetic reasons. No, not, not like sometimes you see those cars driving on the road, all those weird things sticking out of it, right? Okay, the reason there are poles there was so that they would be carried. Okay, it was meant to be carried like that. But actually, that is this picture is not even right. Actually, if you go to the internet and search for like you know the ark, you see lots and lots of pictures of this. But this is not correct. Because this is not the way the ark was meant to be carried. Okay, let me read to you from Numbers. Okay, so Numbers reads, When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they are to cover this with hides of sea cows, spread a cloth of blue, solid blue over that and put the poles in place. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, when the camp is ready to move, the Kohathites are to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of the meeting. So actually, the original picture of the people carrying the ark with no covering is wrong. They were meant to cover the ark with the the tent of the meeting already, and cover it again with a blue cloth. And this is the way that they were meant to cover it. So when we read in chapter 6 verse 3 that David and the men put the ark on the cart and started carting it around, we are meant to get that that sort of a feeling you get when you watch a horror movie, right? You know when you watch a horror movie and then, you know, there's that scratching on the window or the scratching at night and then the guy or the girl gets out of bed and starts going off wandering around somewhere. You know, you always get that feeling something bad is going to happen here. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here because you get that feeling, hey, something is not right. right? They're just putting the ark on the cart 
but they're not meant to do so. And then what happens next? Well, they're traveling along, and as they travel between Obed, uh, sorry, the uh, Bala to Jerusalem, the, the oxen stumbles, and Nakon reaches out to steady the ark, and then he is struck down dead. Now, when you read the story, how did you feel? I know I felt a bit like, hey, God is very unfair. Right? Don't you feel God is very unfair? I mean, like, here is this Uzzah, he's just trying to help the ark not to fall down. I mean, he's just doing his best, right? I mean, he had the good motivation. He was, you know, just looking after the, 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 the stuff that he was carrying around. But actually, you can't blame God, isn't it? Because God had already said very clearly what they were to do with regard to the ark. Because the ark represents God. See, part of the reason is David and Israel forgot the person, the power, and the character of God. See, what is the person, the power, and the character of God? Well, the next slide. Right, God is a God of almighty power and a God of uncompromising holiness. Now, if God is a God of almighty power and uncompromising holiness, then we don't come to God on our terms, but we go to God on His terms. Because if He is so powerful, and if, next slide, we are absolutely and totally sinful. When sinful man comes in touch with an uncompromisingly holy and powerful God, then there must be death and punishment. So the way that God gave the instructions for the ark was there for a reason. Not to be leche, right? He wanted his people to be able to approach him without being struck down. That's why all the coverings, that's why all the poles, that's why all the restrictions, that's why all the rules. I was listening to a really wonderful sermon the other day uh, by this guy called Richard Colkin, and he gave this really profound thing that I never thought about. He said, you know, sometimes we think that God, you know, when he talks about hell and the fires of hell, that, you know, somehow God has to step outside of himself and sort of start up the fires of hell. And start up the fires of judgment. No? But that's not true because actually God's character already has judgment, wrath, and the fires of punishment within himself. You know, judgment, wrath, fire, all these things are not outside of God. They are part of God's character. Because of his uncompromising holiness, and His almighty power, when He comes in contact with sinfulness, it demands, it demands that judgment come about. So when Uzzah, a sinful human being, touches the ark in that way, and actually meets God, then God has no choice, because it is part of Himself, to bring death and judgment in hell. And that's why, as we read this passage, David and Israel, in the first part of this account, were very wrong. They had a good motivation, but they wanted to come to God on their terms. They thought, ah, you know, very burdensome, you know, let's just chong lah. Just get the ark and just, you know, 
let's just take the ark. You know, because you know you carry the ark very heavy, right? What do you carry for? Just use modern technology and automation and get the cart. Let's get going, right? But you see, the way they were approaching God was actually the way the pagans did. The last time we read of people putting the ark on a cart was the Philistines. Right? When the Philistines conquered and defeated the army of Israel and took the ark, they put the ark on a cart and they carted it around all the Philistines and the people were dying everywhere. We cannot approach God on our terms. We must approach God on His terms. So I think even for ourselves, when we read the Bible, let's look at Hebrews here. Oh, sorry, I didn't put it up there. Okay, let me, let me read it for you. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, for us as New Testament Christians, we know that there's only one way to approach a holy and a powerful God. And that is through Jesus Christ. It is only through that way that we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. You see, when people come, and I've met many people who say to me, you know, all roads lead to God. Lah. You know that, that very common picture that people say, you know, whatever religion you take, whatever you do, you all end up coming to the same place. All roads lead to God. Someone just said that to me just last week. But you see, that's the wrong attitude. We think that we can come to God on our own terms. But God says very clearly, no, there are not many roads to God. There is only one road to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. If we are to approach a God who is holy and powerful, we need Jesus to protect us and to guide us on that way. If not, we will end up like Uzzah, right? So, the, the, one of the pictures I had on Uzzah. So, you, you just chong, you do whatever you want. You try to seek and approach God your own way. Then you touch the ark, you meet God, but you end up dying. So, as we go along, we read that Uzzah died and unfortunately the joy and the celebration all stopped. In fact, it says here that two things happened. Two emotions replaced that joy and celebration. One was anger and the other one was afraid. David was angry. I suppose I would be angry too if I was David. You know, I got all of Israel together. We were going to do this great thing. Bring the ark to Jerusalem. And then now, wow, you embarrass me, man, God. You killed someone. And now we've got to stop this project. And, you know, I, I was doing it for you. But then after a while, he became afraid, right? Because he said, hey, this God, uh, he's not like a domesticated tiger, right? A lion. He's an uncontrollable lion. How can I bring this great lion into my house. So they abandoned the project. But not only did they abandon the project, they abandoned God. They left the ark of God behind. 
You know, it says that uh, they left the ark of God <clears throat> with this guy. Uh, <clears throat> look in verse 11. Call Obed, Edom, the Gittite. Two times we are told that the ark was left with Obed, Edom, the Gittite. Edom, Obed Edom literally means the servant of Edom. So Edom is actually the, the, the people outside of Israel or the God. So this person is actually a servant of a foreign people or a servant of a foreign God. A Gittite means that he was a Philistine. So two times we are told that the ark of God, the very presence of God, the, the God who speaks to his people through the ark, was left with a foreigner. What happened to the 30,000 young men who were with David? Not one of them were with, was willing to take the ark and keep it in his house. Instead, they treated the ark of God like, you know, like give it to the Garanguni man. Right? You know, I was like, oh, I got this thing, I, I don't need it at home anymore, I can't keep it at home, I'll just give it to the Garanguni man. It's really shocking, right? Because now they were afraid of God. They were afraid of God. They didn't want God to have anything to do with them because they couldn't control God anymore. But what a mistake that turned out to be because in verse 11, the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, was blessed by God. What an irony. Here God's own people were afraid of God, but then the foreigner, Obed, Edom, the Gittite, was blessed by God. Now, it's quite interesting because if you look at this slide, uh, next slide, when you, when you meet a God who is both almighty in power and uncompromising in holiness, what happens? What do you feel? Uh, you feel afraid, right? You, you, you know, God is very uncontrollable, very unpredictable, erratic, so I don't want anything to do with God. But, next slide, what happens then if you meet a God who is almighty in power, uncompromising holiness, but at the same time wishes to bless and love you? Well then, you don't need to be afraid, but you are able to, to fear Him and have reverence for Him. You see, that's a, there's a big difference right, between being afraid and wanting nothing to do with God and fearing and respecting and reverencing God and, and still being able to draw near to Him. See, as Christians, we are not meant to be afraid of God and say, oh God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right? Actually, if you look in the New Testament, we look in the Gospels, there are times where Jesus encounters people and when they see how powerful Jesus is, it says they were afraid of Jesus and they didn't want to have anything to do with Him. Now as Christians, we are not afraid of God, as in we don't want to have anything to do with Him, but rather we fear and reverence God. So if you look up here in Hebrews, next slide, okay, this one I should have. It says to us as Christians, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. If God is a consuming fire, we can automatically be very scared of God and say, I don't want anything to do with this consuming fire. 
But if you know that God is still on your side, you can still reverence and have awe for Him, even though He's a consuming fire. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Just as, I, as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you by, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, we can fear God who is holy and who will judge because we know that He still loves us and bless us in Jesus. Uh, I saw a quote just a few weeks ago which I thought was helpful by this guy called A.W. Tozer who said, The greatness of God rouses fear within us, but His goodness encourages us not to be afraid of Him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. See, that's very true, right? We, we come to God who is a consuming fire, who will judge all sin. But because we know that we are blessed and loved by Him in Jesus, we can fear His power, but we don't run away. We're not afraid. So anyway, the passage keeps going on, and the project is restarted in verse 12 onwards, right? And um, we, we, we see that it's actually... Uh, a restart, but in many different ways. So David was told that the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has was blessed by God because of the Ark of God. So David went up to bring the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, was watching from a window. And when she saw David, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. In her heart. So the project restarted. Again, there's original feelings of joy and celebration. But look, now they've learned their lesson. Because they know God is a God of almighty power and uncompromising holiness, they no longer cut the ark. They carry the ark. But not only do they carry the ark, they also sacrifice offerings. Now, it's not very clear whether they, you know, we had a bit of discussion about Bible study. Did they just sacrifice once after every, after the six steps and then continue on their journey? Or did they really sacrifice a bull and a calf every six steps along the way, right? Because there's a lots and lots of animals, okay? We don't know, but definitely, you can see that the mood has changed. It is not like, you know, do what I want. It is, it is really, really taking into account the holiness of God and making sure that His wrath is propitiated. But also, we see that David is no longer dressed as a king, but rather he is wearing a linen ephod. 
Now what is a, a, a linen ephod? Now this is what the priests in Israel wore. Okay, so the purple thing at the front is 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 an ephod, right? So it's a bit like uh, my yen can cook uh, apron, right? Okay, so you you know this is what you this is what I, I can't put it over my head. Yeah, so this is like this, but except it's on both sides, lah. Okay, so you can see that this sort of thing would be a very humble thing to wear, isn't it? I mean, this is not a king's. Uh, a king's, you know, shield of armor or you know, crown or whatever. It's a very humble thing. It's it's what the priest would wear. Now, we see humility, we see consecration, we see a seriousness about the holiness and the power of God. But there is one person who doesn't share that joy about the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant coming into the city. And that was Michal. So in verse 16b, we already read that she despised David dancing and leaping before the Lord. In verse 23, we hear her, sorry, verse 20, we hear her exact words. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked, in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Now, I don't think that uh, David was dancing around half naked. Okay, I mean, some people say, okay, because you know he was wearing just the ephod. You know, maybe he wasn't wearing any underclothes under it. So you know, when he was dancing, so you know, wildly, you could see his private parts, right? Okay. Uh, the Bible itself doesn't tell us that he was only wearing the ephod and nothing else. But I think what really got to Michal was that he was behaving in a way which she felt was not kingly. Because he was wearing non-kingly clothes and he was behaving in a way which wasn't regal. Right? So if you look at the next picture, he was probably just dancing around you know, wildly in celebration of in joy of what... Uh, of the celebration of the ark coming to his city, together with everybody So I want us to pay great attention to David's reply, because I think David's reply gets to the heart of the issue. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Notice the phrase that David keeps repeating, the refrain of before the Lord. God chose me before the Lord, so I will celebrate before the Lord. See, that seems to be the key to David's joy. His focus is on God alone, the object of his joy. He doesn't care what other people think. He doesn't care about other concerns. His only thing was, because God chose me, Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. See how different it was from Michal, because Michal didn't have that singular focus on God. She came from the house of Saul. That's what keeps being repeated. She was the daughter of Saul. So for her, she didn't share the joy of God coming into their city. But instead, her focus was on appearances or power or what should be right. 
But if you look at verse 23, the verdict is Michal was wrong. Because in verse 23 it says, And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now this is not meant to say that, you know, David and Michal never had sex again. But it's actually making a much bigger statement in that because her attitude was not in God and rejoicing over God and celebrating over God alone, God did not bless her. You see what a contrast it is because Obed Edom, sorry, Obed Edom, the Gittite, was blessed by God, but the wife of King David was not blessed. You see, at the end of the day, we too, like David, must celebrate before the Lord. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will. Just as God chose David, God has chosen us before the creation of this world. And the same way, we too should celebrate before the Lord. See, the word before the Lord tells us that we should not be preoccupied with all the other things, but our object of joy must be God. Now, the other day I was doing my quiet time in the botanical gardens and I was marveling at this leaf. And I was thinking, you know, how marvelous that this and intricate this living leaf was. And I was thinking, how great God is to, to have made this leaf. And, and then this tree that was there for like 100 years, you know, God had made this tree and it was still alive after 100 years. And the earth, Right, that God had, had made it to grow in. And the planet that we live in, and the universe that we have in. And God, who made all these things, chose us to be saved in Jesus. When you really focus on God singularly, and think of all the things that He has done for you, and how almighty and powerful and great He is, I think we cannot but feel that joy and celebration and thankfulness and reverence and awe of who God is. See, joy is not just an intellectual exercise, right? So yeah, you know, God is powerful, God is holy. Having that reverence and fear and celebration and joy comes because what is in our mind has now inhabited our hearts. In our conclusion... I remember hearing from this guy who was a charismatic many years ago, and he said that part of the reason why he went to a charismatic church was because he needed to get in the mood to worship God. You know, because when you go to the charismatic church, they play lots of loud music and it's very powerful and it's always about, I love you, God, I thank you, God, you're a really great God. But, but the thing is, what he found was that 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 feeling was short-lived because the moment he finished the service, when he went back to work the next day, he lost that feeling. And what he realized was is that you cannot create that feeling with music. You can celebrate God because you really have God as your object of joy and of your object of reverence and fear.
But you cannot create it if you don't know God in a personal and a real way. At the end of the day, it's not about worship style or about music. It is about God Himself. See, if you know God rightly and He is your sole object of joy and all your life is given to being before the Lord, then you don't need to create emotions. The emotions are with you all the time. So let's put aside all our distractions, all our other priorities as we read God's Word, as we remember who we are before God, as we come to church, as we do our Bible studies, as we do our quiet time, I mean, let us really, really remember that it is because God has chosen us. That before the Lord, He chose us before the creation of the world. And this is a great and powerful Almighty God who is uncompromising in holiness, but yet has given us Jesus as a way to have a relationship with Him. And let us really reverence God. And let us really find our joy and celebration in Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for what a mighty and wonderful and loving God you are. For we are sinful, pathetic, and truly depraved. Your uncompromising holiness would never allow us to uh, come before you, to approach you, to touch you. We would all be like Uzzah. But dear Father, you gave us Jesus, you chose us to find faith in Him and to rely on Him, and now we know we can come to you even now in prayer. And dear Father, help us to only focus on you, to be before the Lord in everything at all times, and to find in you our object of joy, celebration, and reverence and fear. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.